Hello, and welcome to The Breakdown, your short, sweet, and digestible guide to public policy issues facing the country today. I'm your host, Brian Phillips, with the Texas Public Policy Foundation. For more information on today's topic and just about any issue that you might read about or write about or post, tweet, hear about, whatever, check us out online at texaspolicy.com. My guest today is part of an exciting new initiative called Project 2025, which is preparing the people and policy for the next conservative presidential administration. One of the major policies that will definitely be on the minds of voters next year, of course, will be education. And Lindsey Burke, Director of Education Policy at the Heritage Foundation, literally wrote the book on conservative education policy. Welcome, Lindsey, to The Breakdown. Thanks for having me. Okay, so maybe you didn't write the entire book, but you definitely wrote uh, one of the most important chapters in a new book called Mandate for Leadership, The Conservative Promise. It's a policy guide. That's a policy part for a guide for the next presidential administration. You can download it for free, actually, and find out more about the project at at project2025.org. In fact, you can actually sign up to be part of the next conservative presidential administration at project2025.org. And maybe Lindsay and I will get into that a little bit later. I definitely want to jump into the policy. Uh, Lindsay, you begin your chapter with probably what I, I would consider the most succinct description of the conservative position on education that I have read in years. And I'll, I'll quote the first two sentences of your chapter. Federal education policy should be limited. And ultimately, the Federal Department of Education should be eliminated. When, when power is exercised, it should empower students and families, not government. Now, that's just the first two sentences in a great, you know, good chapter full of uh, lots of information. But there's a lot to unpack even in just those two sentences. So maybe take us why, take us through why that's the that's the proper conservative starting point when talking about education policy. Well, thanks first for the the kind words about the chapter. It was uh, really a pleasure to write it. And when they initially had reached out and asked me to write it, and I wrote it with a team of contributors, you know, I said it's going to be an awfully short chapter. Just abolish the department, full stop, <laughs> and that's it. You know, <laughs> usually just get applause at that point. You know, it's like eliminate federal education now. Moving on to national security. Right next, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, and look, you mentioned national security. I I think that's a good segue into why we framed it the way that we did and how conservatives think about the proper role of the federal government, if any, in education. Education, as everybody knows, is simply not an enumerated power of the federal government. If you crack open your constitution, you will not find the word education anywhere in it. So from a first principles perspective, it is important to remember that it is simply the case education's not an enumerated power of the federal government, unlike something like national defense, where that is a power of the federal government, it's a responsibility of the federal government. And so we should think about education very differently, not only because of that lack of constitutional authority uh, over education, but also just out of good governance that federal bureaucrats are about as far away from, for instance, a local child in Texas as you could possibly get. They certainly don't know their hopes and desires and aspirations and needs for the future. They don't know their family's values and what they want to get out of schooling. And so they're really the least well positioned to try to improve educational outcomes. And by contrast, all we have gotten from this ever-growing behemoth federal intervention in education is a lot of bureaucratic red tape that's been handed down from Washington. And that has not only 
been bad for students, but it's also just bound the hands of public school teachers as well. I think we often leave them out of the equation, but they're not benefiting either from this ever-growing federal intervention in education. So that was, I think, really our starting point. How do we get to a place where education is as local as possible. And of course, the most local level is when families control education spending. And what steps do you need to take to actually start to seriously think about winding down the Department of Education, which has only existed since 1980? Uh, yeah, I want to get into that too. And in, in the beginning of your chapter, I mean, there's a lot of really good policy in there and recommendations, and we'll get into some of that too. But there's some history in there too. I didn't know that, you know, the, the creation of the Department of Education, which was a mistake, um, was was beget from uh, LBJ's Great Society, which was a yeah. big government mistake. So it just, you know, compounded itself um, all the way through at the time, you know, just give us a little background. I mean, at the time, what was the what, what was the impetus for the Department of Education? And and you talk a little bit about how that has you know gotten way out of whack in terms of what they actually do now. Well, as you mentioned, um, the uh, Great Society really was, I think, if not the impetus, it laid the groundwork for it. So. Just really quick history. If you look at federal involvement in education from, let's say, about 1867, when there was actually a push for a federal department of ed, successful, but it gets demoted a year later to a small office of education. Mm -hmm. So if you fast forward from that point until about 100 years later, until the Johnson administration comes in, 1965, the Great Society efforts launched. During that century, there's basically no federal involvement in education. There are a few programs here and there. We get the GI Bill in 44 for returning service members, the National School Meals Program. But really, that's about it. And so when Johnson comes in and says, well, you know, our focus had been on fighting the Soviets. Sputnik had launched a decade earlier. But now we want to turn that focus toward this domestic war on poverty. And Johnson said, about a third of the war on poverty would be fought in the classrooms of America. And he added there, your children's lives will be shaped, by the way. <laughs> and so that was where we got the federal Head Start program. So federal involvement in preschool and early childhood uh, uh, education. That's where we got, for instance, the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, which was and remains the largest federal law governing K-12 policy. And it's where we got the Higher Education Act, which was the first instance of the federal government underwriting student loans and providing grants to mm -hmm. basically any student who wanted access to those student loans. And so 65 was really the year where we get significant federal intervention for the first time. Well, fast forward to 1979 when President Carter is running for election and he makes a promise to the teachers unions that he will pull all of these programs together, create more efficiency, and create a cabinet level department of education because even as much as johnson did creating all of those new programs they were housed across government it was health education and welfare there was not a cabinet level agency so carter comes in he makes good on that promise he signs into law the department of education organization act in 1979 and reagan comes in a year later tries to abolish he called it carter's bureaucratic boondoggle <laughs> but even just six months later, there was not the will in the Senate, couldn't get it done. And today we still have this BMF agency with 4,000 federal workers making on average six figures. So 
you know, it's there. It's not accruing to the benefit of students or taxpayers or teachers, uh, and certainly not improving Americans standing internationally, not narrowing achievement gaps, improving graduation rates, et cetera. So Reagan may have broken the Russians uh, and saved the world, but I mean, he was really a failure for not getting rid of the Department of Education. <laughs> uh, so we'll, we'll let that slide uh, for today. You know, and, and you, you said, you know, always beware when government decides that they're going to try and do something that they claim is more efficient or less expensive. It will it will invariably always become the opposite. Um, and so uh, one of the things, you know, there's a lot to criticize, you know, fast forward or uh, more to, for, to 2023. And now we have this behemoth. There's a ton to criticize in terms of uh, the way that the, the organization works. What I like about your chapter is that it goes right into the solutions is that you do have sort of a setup. Um, about kind of where we are with education policy, but it goes right in the what to do part, which of course has been a criticism, we, even within the conservative movement for a while, that we need to have solutions for this. Yes, we want to abolish the department, but that, you know, it's not going to happen overnight. So what do we do in the next presidential administration? You've got some um, what is some of your um, ideas, advancing education freedom, restoring state and local control over education funding, treating taxpayers like investors in federal student aid, which I think is very interesting and, and a lot more. Um, but because we have limited time, pick a couple of those or one of those and tell us which one is the most important that people need to know uh, about the future of uh, federal education policy. Well, I think the most important is to have a framework of what programs should be kept and what programs should be eliminated. And so our framework has long been a sort of three-part, is a program ineffective, is it constitutional or not? And is it duplicative? And if it's duplicative, it should go. If it's not constitutional, it probably shouldn't be operated at the federal <laughs> level. And if it's ineffective, it should certainly go. Mm. Well, that rubric covers probably 95% of programs that the department <laughs> operates. And so what this roadmap does is it talks about winding down those programs, restoring revenue responsibility, uh, in other words, cutting funding, but sending that revenue responsibility back to the states and then of those programs that remain, the handful that are appropriate at the federal level, that are effective, that otherwise merit being run by Washington, moving those to other federal agencies. For example, um, if, and it's a big if, because the federal government should not manage a federal student loan program, but let's, let's say that program will continue for a while, then move student loans over to Treasury. Um, Census Bureau. So there is an argument to be made that data collection on education can continue and should uh, in some regard continue. We have the National Assessment of Educational Progress, the nation's report card that shows us how eighth graders and fourth graders do every other year to continue that research function, but to move that over to something like the Census Bureau. Mm -hmm. um, Office for Civil Rights, for example, there's an OCR at the Department of Ed and an OCR at DOJ. You could move those functions over to G DOJ. Mm -hmm. So for every remaining program, we have a plan for the agency that would be the receiving agency for that program. And so I think that's probably the most important component is how do you, and you know, this takes up the bulk of our chapter, but how do you seriously think about winding down the department and what to do with the hundred programs and this just labyrinth agency um, and you know how to how to think about making sure that those programs work effectively. And then I think second, there are some programs that if they're going to remain in place, making sure that when we spend those dollars, we're actually 
putting them to the highest and best use by funding families directly. Mm-hmm. And so programs like Title I, where you know we see most of the spending go from the federal government to low-income districts, programs like the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act at the federal level, those programs often are ineffective, sometimes in the case of IDEA, end up being litigious. Uh, so taking that money and allowing families to determine how those dollars are spent, what schools work well for them, what education environments work well for them. In other words, making those existing federal programs operate through some type of school choice mechanism. So I think that's a really important component of it as well. So those those would be my, my top two, I think, yeah. winding from the department, what a, a serious roadmap looks like for doing that. And then with remaining programs, making sure that families have maximum control over how those dollars are spent. And again, again, those are just two ideas of several that are that are included in the chapter. The book, again, is Mandate for Leadership, The Conservative Promise. You can download it for free uh, at project2025.org. Okay, I'm a person, I, I used to not be this cynical, but just watching Washington, particularly from you know a place like the land of the free and a place like Texas, uh, I just think to, to in terms of doing big things or doing getting legislation passed is hopelessly broken, particularly now that we have uh, divided government. So the question is, then you have all these reforms forms that, uh, that, that you're proposing that you want to do, how much of that has to actually go through Congress and be signed by the president? Or how much of what you're proposing here uh, can, can happen through executive action in the White House? Yeah, there are some components that could. Much of what we did propose would have to ultimately go through Congress. And yes, it's going to be an uphill battle, certainly, but we're never going to get there if we don't give it a good try. And I think the general public understands and recognizes how ineffective this federal agency in particular has been. There are surveys that show that the general public thinks less of the Department of Ed than the IRS. And that's saying something. So, you know, (laughs) the public is there, I think uh, conservatives in particular in Congress are largely there as well. And so at this point, I think it really is getting that serious roadmap out there for how to actually dismantle the department and then doing things like holding hearings on how effective or ineffective the department has been, how Mm -hmm. ineffective particular programs have been, waste and fraud and abuse at the agency. Um, You know, whether or not you could replicate something like the Education at a Crossroads report that former Congressman Pete Hoekstra did about two decades ago, where he would go over to the department unannounced and say, what is it you do here? You asked for this report. Where is it? Um, So there's a lot that Congress could do and needs to do in order to lay the groundwork for a really robust effort. By the way, I would add, it will take a sort of federal state choreography to ultimately be successful. We need to work with states to have governors and state legislators step up and say, yeah, the juice isn't worth the squeeze. We also don't want a federal department of ed anymore. Remember, 90% of education revenue, K-12 education spending is generated at the state and local level. Mm -hmm. Only about 10%. It's actually like 8.5% of school money comes from federal taxpayers from Washington. Mm -hmm. So there's a very good argument to be made that the regulations and red tape far exceed that 8.5% financing share. So I think there are a lot of governors that understand that, a lot of state legislators that understand that. So to have them speak out and to say, yes, we would like the option either to opt out of these programs and put our share of money toward what works for our particular state and to ultimately see the department dissolved, 
would go a long way in helping that sort of federal state choreography component play out. Well, we are, certainly are well aware of that at Texas. I mean, education funding, every single biennium was one of the biggest things that are that we haggle over and argue over about, you know, is the money going where it needs to go and is it serving the right purpose? So we definitely know, you know, send us more of that money this way. We're happy to to uh, to fight over it or, or maybe don't send it to the federal government at all. Um, <laughs> exactly. you know, one of the goals, uh, you know, as, as I mentioned, Project 2025 um, is is trying to seek out people for the next administration. And so you can go to that website, project2025.org and sign up and, and start the vetting process uh, to uh, to be part of the next administration. The reason for that, of course, um, is because uh, part of one of the goals of the project is to address the debilitating bureaucracy uh, that makes it so difficult for conservatives in particular uh, to get anything done. Uh, sometimes the, the the people who work for the president, the people who are in the administration are even openly hostile uh, uh, to the president's agenda. Uh, you address some of that in your chapter in terms of how to, uh, you know, what, what how would we address something like that? Yeah. Well, look, I think civil service reform is critical. It's a big component that has to I think really accompany any robust plan for winding down any federal agency, education or otherwise, because you're right, there are these entrenched interests within the federal government, um, many of whom are uh, long serving career staff that might not uh, have the same policy ideas or reflect the same uh, opinions as the elected representatives, uh, particularly the next administration that comes in. And that can make it really difficult for any administration to accomplish its its goals. And so that has to be a big component of it. Like you alluded to a minute ago, this is a big part of what Project 2025, really the heart of what Project 2025 is about, making sure that the next conservative administration is well-staffed with conservatives who are like-minded and want to reduce the size and scope of the federal government across the board and restore freedom and control to the American people, uh, that's that's at the heart of it. That's what it's all about. And so the staffing component of Project 2025 is really there to address that exact issue. Okay, so we have a couple minutes left. Um, I definitely want to always try and end up on a positive note. Um, so, you know, one of the things that we've seen at the state level uh, is that education policy um, has, has had some resurgence because of um, the focus on parent empowerment. It's, it's sweeping across the nation. You're seeing a lot of states use that momentum to pass uh, school choice laws. Uh, they're looking at things like curriculum transparency has been a huge one in the states. Uh, the, this horrible, inappropriate materials that are being found in school libraries, just the shocking uh, materials that are found in there. Um, this anti-parent behavior by by teachers and by other school officials and school boards. You know, over the last two or three years, all of that has kind of come to a head, and you're starting to see this momentum from a parent-driven movement uh, to to take back their schools and and empower families. How do you see conservatives, I don't know, like bottling that momentum uh, and, and potentially bringing that up to the federal level for reform? Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's such a good question, because that is really what drove this phenomenal expansion of education choice that we're seeing continue to, to catch on across the states. Hopefully we'll see Texas move in that direction <laughs> in the very near term, because look, pretty soon Texas is going to be surrounded by choice states, by states where a family can decide on their own what schools or learning environments are the right fit for them and reflect their values. And that will be a huge 
attraction for families as they're thinking about where to live long-term. Can I choose a school that's safe and effective and reflects my family's values? Um, so hopefully we'll see Texas move in that direction through universal education savings accounts. But yeah, I mean, look, families saw, it's cliche to even mention at this point, but when COVID made everything virtual at the behest of the teachers unions, they got a really good look as to what kids were being taught in the classroom. And in a lot of cases, they were shocked at what they saw. I mean, half an hour ago before uh, you called, I was editing a paper where we have included graphics of these books that are being uh, that are so rightly contentious uh, in these school board debates. I mean, they to say they're pornographic is not an overstatement whatsoever. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is I couldn't display it in a newspaper or on TV uh, without getting shut down. So, you know, this is parents are right to be concerned about content that is not age appropriate for their children. Mm -hmm. They're right to be concerned about general sort of left-leaning content that might fall under the rubric of critical theory or critical race theory. And that sort of values-based concern is really what has driven this push for choice. Yes, families are concerned about academic outcomes. They're certainly concerned about student safety, but they are extremely concerned that their schools are not reflecting community norms and values and what they hope uh, ultimately uh, the values that are instilled in their children. And so I think that momentum is going to continue as long as families don't feel that schools, that districts, that school boards are uh, hearing them and changing course. And look, I mean, at the federal level, there's not a lot we can do, thankfully, <laughs> at the federal level, but there are some things that can be done. I alluded mm -hmm. to some of them earlier, existing federal programs, making those dollars portable, following families to schools of choice. One really important thing, which would also be a huge boon to Texas that Congress should do is give school choice to military families. Every child of an active duty military family should receive an education savings account. It goes back to national security being an enumerated power of the federal government. We know that about a third of service members have thought about leaving the military altogether because of the schools their kids would have to attend at their next duty station. So this is a national security issue. We need to give those children education choice as well. So there are things that can be done at the federal level to advance school choice in a really robust way. But hopefully at the state level, we're going to continue to see this catch on like wildfire. We've got 14 states now with education savings accounts. So um, hopefully Texas is right behind, you know, Arkansas or whatever it was that just passed it. So yeah, uh, we'll, we'll be the next ones. You know, last last question. Um, you know, how when when you are nominated for for the secretary of education <laughs> in the next administration, how will you convince people that you're serious about eliminating the department? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, you know, you just have to. I think anybody would just say, "Sorry, you can't accept the job because it shouldn't exist." Yeah, it, it, that has happened before. We've seen that in Texas in some departments where people became the, you know, the administrators of the agency or something, and then you know spent the next two years eliminating. So it can happen. So we're going to hold you to that um, at your confirmation hearing. You know, we're going <laughs> to pull this pull this video up. No, but thank you, uh, uh, Lindsey Burke, uh, the, the director of education policy at the Heritage Foundation. Absolutely wrote the book on education, conservative education policy. Um, and you can get that book, uh, Mandate for Leadership, at project2025.org. Uh, we really appreciate, appreciate your time. Thank you so much uh, for being with us. Thanks for having me. And for our listeners and all of our watchers, thank you again for, for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.